Father, we are so blessed. We have so much. And we'd ask that you would guide and direct even more today. Fill us full of wisdom and knowledge of your word. And as we gain that knowledge, Lord, may that wisdom be manifest because we are listening to your spirit. We are being guided and led by his voice. And your scripture says that we know you, we know your voice. So, Father, we would pray that you would just instill in us an urgency for those who need salvation, who need discipleship. And as we go through this, Lord, help us to be better disciples. Help us to submit more to your will. And with your help, we'll accomplish this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we left off in chapter 1, and I'm going to review just a little bit of that in chapter 1. Paul expresses his love for those in Corinth. He, He loves the people in Corinth. And he gives thanks to God for them. He reminds them that they are fully equipped to be disciples, that they have the gifts that they need in order to accomplish God's will. And he will bring their salvation to fruition. In other words, they're a work in process, this sanctification. We have been set apart for God, but also we're working through that set-apart process. And Paul points out that there is division among them. In verse 10, he wants them to be united, and he even explains the division. As I read last week in verse 12, it says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, and another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Verse 13, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course, these are rhetorical questions. The answer is no. But the reason they were divided, it seems to be over the issue of baptism. Who were you baptized by? Whoever you were baptized by, well, you must have more of an anointing on you. You must be more special because that individual has baptized you. And then there's the individual that says, but I'm of Christ, and Christ did not baptize anybody. And they're saying, he is more important than everyone else. And so they're just kind of going back and forth. Now, with this, (coughs) excuse me, they are being uh, prideful in their proclamation that they have been baptized by somebody. They're being excessively proud and self-satisfied in their talk because of their own achievements, their associations, or their abilities. That's what they're doing. They're pointing to themselves and saying, I am better than most because I have followed this particular person. And we understand that this boasting was based on this idea of who they associated with, specifically baptism. And as disciples of Jesus, we understand baptism is important. It's something that is supposed to be done. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, some misinterpret that particular scripture to mean that Not only do you have to believe, but you have to be baptized. And if you are baptized in a particular way, then you're saved. But if you're not baptized in that particular way, you're not saved. Now, if we read it like that, I think we run into error. While it is unscriptural to make baptism essential to salvation or certain means of regeneration, it is nevertheless a dangerous act of disobedience to undervalue baptism or neglect it. So we're not supposed to do that, but it does not provide salvation because the lack of emphasis that Paul puts on it. He says, you know, I only baptized a few people and maybe this household over here, that's what I did, but that was it. Now, if baptism was necessary for salvation, what would Paul have been doing? 
baptizing everybody in sight, but he downplays it as far as its ability to regenerate. It does not have that ability to regenerate. The idea of baptism, it it went from circumcision in the Old Testament to baptism in the New Testament. The circumcision identified the Jews with the people of God, the Israelites. Baptism identifies those individuals inside the church with the body of Christ, with the bride of Christ. If you did not do circumcision, you were to be cut off from your people. If you don't do baptism, you're not cut off from your people. You're just simply disobedient. And God says, be disobedient. I mean, you're supposed to believe and be baptized. These are like the two basic things that we run across. And so the lack of emphasis by Paul on baptism shows us that it is not essential for salvation. If it were, he would have been diligent to make sure he was getting as many people baptized as is possible. So that's the emphasis that we see from the scripture here. And Paul explains that he did not do a lot of baptizing, as I just explained in verses 14 through 16. He says, I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else at all. So see, he kind of downplays it. It's not that important because they're pointing to these individuals who did the baptizing and he goes no that's that's not what it's about at all also baptism is more or less valid depending on who does the baptize, baptizing the power of baptism is what it represents and not who performs it so that's why it's important for us scripture says to do it We're supposed to follow through with that if we are disciples. If we're not disciples, those people don't need to follow through with it. If they're not disciples, they're not believers. I heard somebody recently say, are Christians disciples and are disciples Christians? Well, we know from Scripture the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. They're one and the same. There's not supposed to be a a difference. All you can say is, if somebody is not acting like a disciple... They're simply immature or they're carnal. That's what you can say. But to say that somebody is not a disciple if they're a Christian or not a Christian if they're a disciple, that type of thing, uh, the, the saying goes, all disciples are Christians, but not all Christians are disciples. I would disagree with that statement. Christians are disciples. Disciples are Christians. It's just the level of maturity. If you see that somebody is carnal, well, either they are not saved or they're just walking in the flesh. That's how we describe it in Scripture. So to baptize is not what Paul was sent to do, but he was sent to preach the gospel. This says this in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now that was his job as an apostle. Now as an apostle, signs and wonders and miracles would have followed him. And we know specifically that they did follow him. But these people were involved in boasting over somebody else. They said, you know, they're, they're just great. They're fantastic, and we need to be baptized by them. And if you haven't been, well, you're missing out a little bit. <clears throat> now, in chapter 3, Paul admonishes those in Corinth to stop boasting. Now, what is boasting exactly? It's kind of like bragging. It's not wise. It is used to show either status, superiority, authority, supremacy, or advantage. That's what boasting is all about. If, for instance, I work with my hands, and I work inside the church, 
And I love both. And when I work outside and if I build things or if I do things, I step back and I look at it and I go, that's good. Pat myself on the back and that's good job, Bill. You know, I tell myself that and it feels good on the inside. And my flesh wants to grab somebody and say, look at what I did. Isn't that that nice? That's good. That's boasting. That's what it is. We boast about the things that we've done or we've accomplished. And by the way, I know I'm not alone in this. We all do that. If we accomplish something well in the flesh, we like people to look at it, recognize it, and say, oh, bravo, well done. And, and if they do, then we feel good on the inside and it's all wonderful. And it's good to deliver praise, but that praise should not be directed to come to us by ourselves. If somebody else wants to do that, that's just fine. But we don't want to point out ourselves and what we have accomplished. Now, this is essentially what boasting and bragging is all about. Even in chapter 3, <coughs> excuse me, of 1 Corinthians, in verse 21, it says, So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are all of Christ and Christ is of God. It's like we're all equal in this. So don't make this separation, this division of following one person over another. We are all the same. We are all servants of the Most High God. So boasting can have an effect on others by belittling or causing them to envy or even a patronizing effect. Like if you, if you say, look what I did after maybe you've seen something that somebody else has done and it's maybe a little substandard, you go, well, look what I did. It has a tendency to belittle others. Or if you have been following a particular teacher or a person, look who I follow. Well, I know you follow that person, but look who I follow. We do this in sports teams, don't we? You get the Super Bowl going on. Our team is so much better than yours. And this rivalry goes back and forth. We are better on the inside because we follow the sports team. You, you lack a little bit. You're okay, but you lack a little bit. Come on over to our side. And we have this friendly banter that goes back and forth, but some people are fully into it. They have idols at home. They, they have the jerseys. They have the helmets. They, they have everything when it comes to football. And so we set up our little idols, our little shrines to these things that we think are superior. Now, on another hand, you look at the United States. Some people will say the United States is looking at itself like we are superior to everyone. And I think the majority of Americans say, no, we are blessed beyond everyone. And the reason we are blessed beyond everyone is because of our founding, those men, they knew who God was, and that's why we're blessed. But some people misinterpret that and they say, you think you're better than everyone else. We need to divide up what you have and we need to give it to the rest of the world because you stole it from some... That's not how it works. But of course, I believe that that is the enemy, whether it's in the spiritual matters, the physical matters politics, religion, we have a tendency to do this. We have a tendency to say, mine is better than yours. And we're not supposed to do that. We are given more insight on this as well. Psalm tells us, the book of Psalms in chapter 94, verse 3, it talks about the wicked, 
how they are full of boasting. How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All evildoers are full of boasting. And so you see it's, it's something in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. But you get to Corinth, and there's a bunch of carnal Christians in Corinth. They don't know how to separate the ways of the world from the ways of the Spirit. And they're learning, and that's why Paul loves them, because they end up being obedient, even though there are some that cause them a lot of pain and heartache inside the church of Corinth. If we get into 2 Corinthians, there are those who are called super apostles. And, of course, Paul is being tremendously sarcastic. He's saying, oh, you got those super apostles over there that are just supposed to be wonderful, who say that Paul's writings are weighty and heavy, but when you see him in person, he's a bald, short, fat guy that, you know, kind of hangs, maybe he's not fat, maybe he's skinny, he kind of hangs over a little bit. And, And so that's what they're doing. They're comparing people, like who people are that are good and and worthy to be followed and those that aren't. And so he had a problem that we'll find out eventually in 2 Corinthians. Now, also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, the Corinthian church, they boasted about a lot. And in this particular case, there was a man who had his father's wife, his stepmother, and he was sleeping with her. And they were boasting about it. See the freedom we have in Christ? And Paul goes, "Eh," put on the brakes. I don't think so. And he says, your boasting about this is not good because they were boasting. He said, we have freedom to do this. And Paul says, no. And at the end of the chapter, he says, have, shouldn't you have thrown this man out of the church? Is what he, they said. And apparently, if you read a little bit between the lines, this guy was kicked out of the church and they accepted him back. At least that's what some of the scholars believe. And he repented of his sins. But they were boasting in the freedom that they thought they had, which they were boasting in simply sim- sinful behavior. So they boasted that they were associated with other spiritual leaders. They boasted that they thought they had the freedom to endorse sexual sin. Scripture tells us that boasting is what the wicked do. Conclusion, stay away from self-satisfied talk about achievements, associations, and abilities. Don't point to yourself and tell people how good you are. For we know that there is only one who is good. And by the way, I'm saying that in such a way not to be accusatory, just something to file away. This is how we're supposed to act. This is what God says to do. This is how the Apostle Paul has instructed us. Now, back to the baptism controversy in verse 17. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so there is power that is in the cross, and it can be diminished by human wisdom. He makes this comparison between wisdom of the world or human wisdom and the wisdom that comes from God. So what is the difference between the two? Uh, You know, if somebody came up to you today and they said, you need to go to the gas chamber for the sake of God and kill yourself. Or if they said, take up your electric chair and follow Christ. If you said that to somebody who is outside the church, an unbeliever, even inside the church, it's kind of offensive. Pick up your electric chair. You know, why don't we have an electric chair with a chain around our necks? We carry a cross, you know, around our necks or bumper stickers or wherever you may have a cross. Could you imagine in your house, some houses you walk into and there are crosses up there. There's a cross right here. Imagine if it was an electric chair. 
And you say, what's the electric chair doing? Well, pick up your electric chair and follow Christ. The world would say, are you nuts? What are you talking about? What do you mean enter into the gas chamber and you will be set free? What are you saying? So the world looks at that and says, you are crazy. The way to excel, the way to achieve is up. You need to make sure that you are ascending to the heights of reason, using information, demanding signs, becoming better, rising to the occasion, elevating oneself, having the proper or better relationships. Everything in the realm of improving self is using human reason. And that's what the wisdom of the world is, just to elevate yourself. Why do they tell you that you need to go to university? You need to improve yourself. You need to better yourself so you can be ready for the world out there. And there's some wisdom in that as a... Time goes on, there's less and less wisdom about going to a university, especially with what they're teaching. But that's the world's view. You take this particular road, you get this understanding, and we'll see in a minute that the Jews required a sign. Unless they had a sign, they weren't going to believe. The Greeks, they wanted wisdom. Unless you could reason through and, and answer every objection, then what you're saying is foolishness. And that's how they operated. Also... This using of reason, you know, human reason, human intellect, human wisdom. Uh, Using reason to dispute, to resolve every issue under the sun. Now that's what the Greeks would do. The Greeks would sit down and you would propose something to them. And they would try to look at it from every facet, like a diamond has so many facets on it. They would exhaust every possible facet of a diamond or of reason in order to validate a truth or to say it is false. That's what they would do. So if you said something along the line of Jesus Christ came to die, did he really come to die? Well, I'm not sure he came to die. That was his purpose. He was a good moral teacher. He showed what it was to sacrifice his own cares, wants, needs, and desires for the sake of others. And that's what we need to go to. And so they they take off in this road of reason. And we have done that through the centuries. We have said, well, Christ isn't really God or Christ isn't really man. And they try to come up with all these reasons to object to what Scripture actually teaches. And that is human wisdom. And we're supposed to take that and say, no, it's simple in Scripture. Christ came to die for our sins to redeem us. That is the wisdom that comes from God. But the world considers that foolishness. Now, there are those who always have an objection to discovering what the truth actually is when we should be receiving truth by faith. And what I mean by that is, there are those who will look at scriptures and they will try to find every single objection to what is written there in plain English because they have a particular view. I just recently, this last week, I was talking to somebody. I love being able to talk to people about Scripture, about God, about Jesus Christ, our Savior, outside the church. And I get a chance to do that on a semi-regular basis. And I know this one guy, he's, he's not really interpreting Scripture correctly. And so I had a chance this week, and so I, I stopped him and what we were doing, and I said, I have a question for you. How do you interpret Scripture? Because I know he's kind of off, and I want to bring him back to what scripture has to say. And I said, how do you do that? I said, can you give me your points of how you interpret scripture? And I didn't say like context, context and syntax and what it meant to the people at the time it was written, not what it means to us today. And there's several different things that you go through in order to interpret scripture properly. If somebody says, 
oh, you can interpret Scripture so many ways. No, you really can't. It, it, it's really pointed out to us what Scripture means. Scripture interprets Scripture, and that helps us to get to the truth that God means to communicate. Do you think that God wanted us to know simple truth? He does. But if we muddy it up and we make it symbolic or we make it theoretical, then it really gets muddied up. And so I asked this guy, tell me, how do you interpret Scripture? This is what he said. If I don't find it in the Old Testament, I reject it. I said, really? I said, you know, the church is not in the Old Testament. And of course, he stopped for a minute. It's like, well, and he didn't know what to say. I said, if you're using that as your guide, if it's not in the Old Testament, because he leans towards keeping some of the stuff in the law. And I said, what, what about the scripture that says in the Old Testament, if you fail to keep any one of these sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, you are to be cut off from your people. And, you know, the sacrifices, you have the sin offering, you have the burnt offering, you have the fellowship offering, you have the wave offering, you have the ordination offering. I said, you're not doing any of that. Why aren't you doing that? And if you fail to keep one of those, you're breaking the whole law. And, of course, we, he goes, well, you're giving me something to think about. And I said, well, that's good. I'm glad you're thinking about this. You know, we need to move on to maturity and how we interpret Scripture and know what it actually says. But there are individuals who say, no, I, I don't believe that. And here's why I don't believe it. But they're not using Scripture for their justification. They're not reasoning through Scriptures. And there are always are people who continually learn about the Bible but they're never able to apprehend the truth, to make it their own. They look at what Scripture has to say, and they still want to hold to their particular views. And when they do that, they're neglecting the truth of Scripture. For instance, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7 says, they are always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. In other words, they look at every aspect, every facet of something that may even be controversial or may not be controversial inside of Scripture, and they want to find some reason why it doesn't comport or doesn't line up with what simple truth is. They want to negate it. They want to put it off to the side. They will refuse to believe. For instance, do you guys know one of the new atheists by the name of Richard Dawkins? Richard Dawkins, he has this idea of the universe. And basically what he said was, the universe looks like it's been put together in an intellectual way, that there is order to it. It appears that way. But he rejects it. Have you ever heard the phrase, if it walks like a duck, if it talks like a duck, it's a duck. If the universe looks like it's been ordered, you can see Evidence, or excuse me, evidence tells us that those things are all true. Well, it's ordered. There is somebody who is a designer that put it together, but he refuses. He refuses, this Richard Dawkins, he refuses to see that there is a designer behind the design of the universe. And we do that sometimes with Scripture. We get stuck on our hobby horse and we say, I will not believe what you are telling me. Well, Okay, we can be like the Israelites. And the Israelites, I was going back through Leviticus, and in Leviticus it says that the Israelites grumbled. If you look up synonyms to grumbled, it can also be translated. They were obstinate. To be obstinate, it means simply 
that even though people sit down with you, they reason through whatever subject it is, you refuse to be moved. We become hard-hearted, a stiff-necked people is what they were. And God tells us, do not do that. That's why I tell anybody that I talk to about the scriptures, if you can prove to me from the scriptures what you believe, I will change my view. I will even tell that to the Jehovah Witnesses and to the Mormons and to the Muslims. I tell them that. If you can prove to me that this is the case, you have the evidence, I will change what I believe. Every time I've given that, most of the people say, when I ask them, will you do the same? They say, no, I will never change. And I said, you are being obstinate. If you will not listen to the truth, however it is interpreted properly, you're being obstinate. And you are going to be just like the Israelites. I told this one guy, you're going to be just like the Israelites. They never entered the promised land. I said, don't be obstinate. If there's something that is revealed to us, not through human wisdom, but through the power of the Spirit, then we need to pay attention to that. So there are also those things that we can get involved with that are called foolish and stupid arguments. Now, yesterday we were at a men's breakfast over at Calvary Chapel Perfect Love. And at that men's breakfast, we were talking about cell phones going off in church. (laughs) Just kidding. We weren't talking about that. (laughs) But we were talking about some programs on television and on radio. It's just a bunch of different stuff. And the the subject came up of uh, ancient aliens. And the ancient aliens, uh, these these programs, I forget the guy's name who has the weird hair he gets on there and stuff. But anyhow, they they were saying, well, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, it was actually, it was either a receiver or a transmitter or something because it has gold on it and it can conduct electricity and, and there's probably some type of speaker system or whatever. And so aliens could communicate with the Jews and that's how they found out what they're supposed to do. Foolish and stupid argument. I don't know who that guy is who's producing that on television, but he should be drawn to court. Well, maybe not. Maybe not drawn a quarter, but that should just be taken off the air. And all that is meant to just confuse believers. It is a ruse of the enemy. Put that stuff out there. Therefore, nobody will believe anything that it happens to comport with the truth. And so we want to avoid those stupid arguments which are there and just accept the word that has been humbly planted in us because it is able to save us. Now, worldly wisdom tests everything and accepts nothing. That's what the Greeks were doing. They would test every truth that Paul would bring out there, but they would accept none of it. They would always look for the contrary, the opposite, and try to argue for that. There is always some exception. Godly wisdom tests and fully accepts the good or that which is truth. We are told in Scripture, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, test everything, hold on to the good. And it, it implies we're being active in doing that. That we take that which is truth and we test it. And we're supposed to test it. Remember Acts 17, 11? The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. They received the word with eagerness and they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. So even the apostles were supposed to be examined. What they're saying, if it is true or if it is false. And that's how you can know if they were an apostle and if what they were saying was, in fact, valid. So we're to test everything. But the person who holds to human wisdom, they'll test everything and accept nothing. They'll say, nothing can be known for certain. There, and you can't say something is impossible. They express it in an exponential fashion, one times 10 to the 54th power that this could be possible. That's how they say it. They won't say that something for all practical purposes is impossible or is possible. 
And so that's where the worldly human wisdom goes. But we have God's wisdom. Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians, what is God's wisdom? Now, remember the electric chair? We would say, as a human being, that's foolishness. Pick up your electric chair, pick up your cross, go to the gas chamber. That's foolishness. How are you going to get anywhere doing that? But God's wisdom is... If we die, if we become lowly, if we take all of our cares, wants, needs, and desires and put them to the side, if we deny ourselves, if we recognize how lost we are, if we forsake our pride, if we have a broken heart over sin, that is God's wisdom, and he will give us the salvation. But the world says, no, you need to excel. You need to get all those funny letters behind your name. You need to show everybody that you are wise. You need to put it in book form. You need to go on the speaking tour. And everybody will listen to you. And none of that is God's wisdom. All of that is human wisdom. Remember the disciples? They knew that they were uneducated. They were a bunch of fishermen that probably never excelled past learning how to write down a few words. And if that was the case, they looked at them as like, you don't know anything. But when they appeared before the Sanhedrin, before the leaders of the Jews, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And that was the power of God. The lower they got, the more God elevated them. And that's the case with us. The lower we are, the more humble we are, the more God uses us. The more we try to achieve, the higher we go. God says, eh, I can't really use that. I need to take you down a notch. And, and so that's what God's wisdom is. The loneliness is what we're supposed to cultivate. And going on, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And by the way, both perishing and being saved are actions that are happening and continue to happen, even for us. We are either working towards our salvation, the ultimate consummation of being redeemed, or we are going towards perdition we are going towards judgment we're going towards perishing and that's the way of the world the part that we're supposed to play in that is find those who are perishing grab them metaphorically by the nap of the neck and say i have something to tell you now how do we do this exactly you know we're all called to be these witnesses how do you turn to somebody who doesn't have christ and tell them about Christ. Now just for instance, if you stood on a street corner and you just started preaching. Now I've been to downtown San Diego on a couple of occasions. One guy was at a, a bus stop and he was preaching Christ. And I'm thinking, well, good for you. But absolutely nobody was responding to him. Now if they were listening or not, I don't know. Some people had headphones in. It's like, they, you know, this person who is, and it was loud enough to where you could hear him for half a block. I've been down there before where a Lighthouse Baptist Church, they'd be on a corner. Everybody, it, it would be like, um, how do you say it? You drop some oil in some water and the stuff that's on top, it just like goes to the side. That's kind of what the people did around Lighthouse Baptist Church as they were street preaching. And look, I'm not going to speak against street preaching. It's not my thing. Some people are called to do it. If one person gets saved, well, praise the Lord. That's great. <clears throat> but there are different modes of doing it. You know how they say, since we're in the political season, if any of you are feeling the burn, uh, this, this idea 
that we look at the political candidates and they say, all politics is local. What do they mean by that? It means like the decisions are dis- they're made at the local level and then it becomes national. So you want to influence at the local level. For us, we do have crusades that we go to. 3,000 people come forward and we say, well, how many of those are actually converts? How many are rededications? How many are truly getting saved? And is there a good return for your money? And, well, it may be worth it if one person gets saved. Again, I'm not speaking against that. That's just another way to do it. And for those who are called to do it, well, more power to you. But it's still local. What what they would have in an evangelistic crusade is they would have the churches follow up. You call them up. You meet with them. You disciple them. It is one-on-one. That's how it's supposed to happen. That's how it has always happened, where somebody comes in and disciples someone else. I owe a debt of gratitude uh, to two people. Their name are Jeff and Tess, and they discipled me, especially Jeff. You know, he would tell me what things meant and I I was just a new believer I was zealous for the Lord I was on fire I was probably burning people up all around me not just warming them but torching them is what I was doing and he he taught me how to you know just temper that a little bit you know to just take it down a notch it's okay you know this is the direction you want to go but just make sure you're doing it properly And, and so learning how to talk to people about Christ it's difficult but you got to start doing it All of us do, not just pastors. I did this before I was a pastor because I was taught this is what we need to do. Okay, this is part of the discipleship. I need to tell people about Christ. And you have a lot of trial and error. And you offend people sometimes. And you go, oh, well, Lord, that was a burnt offering. And you pray for somebody else to come along and witness to that individual. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. And I love the one-on-one. I love pulling them to the side and I start by asking them questions. Now, you can't just ask them a question right off the cuff without knowing the individual. For instance, if you go into some place like Albertsons and you're standing in the 10-item the, uh, line and you turn to the person in front of you and say, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? What kind of response you can think you're going to get from that person? Like, Seriously? You know, I'm just buying three items here. I just, leave me alone. You know, they just want to go through the aisle. That's not how it works. God has put people in your lives, every one of you, that God wants the gospel given to. And if they don't know, the, or if they already know the gospel, he wants them to become a tour. And you can't take the cop-out position, well, I'm doing that with my family. Wonderful. That's great. But what about people who aren't your family? We're supposed to talk with them. That's why God determined the places in which we would reside, the cities in which we had lived, the time in which we had born, so we would be coming in contact with people who needed the gospel once we're saved. And so we build a relationship. Hey, how you doing? Oh, it's good to see you. Hey, great. I'll, I'll see you next week. And you start building a relationship. And then pretty soon you're able to say, hey, I got a question for you. And they go, yeah, what's up? I say, do you go to church anywhere? And they're either going to say, well, yeah, no, or no, sometimes. You know, I went with my parents once when I was seven. Whatever the case is. And then you can say, well, can I talk to you about that? Most of the time, almost all the time, they're going to say, well, yeah, what do you want to know? People aren't going to say, do not talk to me. (sighs) They're, They're not going to do that. 
everyone wants to talk about God, whether they're full-blown atheist, they're an agnostic, or they're a believer. Everyone does, and you can overcome that fear right away because everybody has an opinion about God. Now, if they express to you, well, I don't believe there's a God, and I don't want to talk about it. Oh, okay. By your own words. I'll leave that out. Hope to see you again next week. And then you bring him some cookies from your wife that you, you know, made something. Just be, kill him with kindness. You know, that's killing the flesh with the kindness. And pretty soon they're going to say things like, why are you always so nice to me? If there's a full-blown atheist and they're ornery about it. Why are you so nice to me? Well, let me tell you. I've got a, I've got a reason. Do you want to hear it? And you see how the conversation can develop? And so that's what you want to do. All religion, all salvation, all discipleship is local. It is not taking place on the big screen. The person who comes to church just to get the message on Sunday, they're missing it. They're not being the disciple. They need to be in fellowship. That's why we should all be going to a study, one study or another. We should all be involved somewhere. Unless we do that, we cannot learn what it is to be a disciple. Or, even worse, we stagnate. Now, I had the wonderful opportunity of working on some plumbing yesterday. And I got under the sink, and I got to remove the trap. And I'm opening that up because it's not flowing very well, and I found out that I need to snake out the pipe. But I opened that up. And I pulled it down and I go, oh, because the water in there was, and you know what's in a trap. I don't have to describe to you what's in a trap. But I'm holding that thing and, oh, yeah. oh I pour that stuff out and, and then I, I see there's nothing in it. So I stick it back on and, oh, I got to wash my hands. You know, it's just stagnating. And we can do that as Christians. We can stagnate. We can say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go forward. I'm not going to learn more. I'm comfortable where I am. I'm not going to grow. I was always told if you're not growing, you're dying. I don't want to die, so I want to keep growing. And if there's something that needs to be pruned off of me, if I'm like a plant using that metaphor, prune it off. Because what happens when we get pruned? We grow more. Another illustration i had a a chance to prune a johnson lemon excuse me a myers lemon and another tangerine and i was taking off all this growth and guess what's coming out now with a vengeance all kinds of growth is coming off and so we have to let the lord prune us if there's something that needs to be pruned out like lethargy or apathy let him prune it off And then you have to go forward and say, okay, I'm going to learn more than I've ever learned. Even though my mind is not quite as sharp as a tack, now it's sharp as a marble, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go forward and I'm I'm going to do all that I can and retain all that I can for the sake of the gospel. This is the wisdom of God and it requires us to die to self. If we're not dying to self, we're living for self. And God says, don't do that. That's why I will grab hold of any opportunity if it presents itself. And sometimes I'll make them to talk to somebody about Christ. That's why I live. Now, not that I'm good because I blow it all the time. There's sometimes where God tells me to say something and I go, I'm busy. 
You know, I got things to do. I got places to go. And, oh, and, and then if I finally just stop, it's such a blessing if I do that. And I'm just telling you the trial and error. And you have to go through the trial and error. You have to invite people to church. You have to offer to disciple them. You have to offer to meet with them. That's what Christ told us to do. And you say, well, but I'm not equipped. Let's go to study. Let's learn more. Let's listen to every message you can. And when you do, it transforms you on the inside where you... I think I can do this. I, I, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think there's a little train. I think I can. I think I can. You, know, you can do this. God has created us for this particular purpose. So this is the difference between human wisdom and God's wisdom. Human wisdom, raise yourself up. God wisdom, lower yourself down. Do what he asks. Be his servant. Be that doulos, the one who goes to the doorpost and he puts a, a all through your ear and he sticks that gold ring and he says, you are my servant for life. And you say, I will willingly do this. For those who want to be obstinate, we miss so many blessings. Because it's always a blessing when you know you have done God's will and on the inside, his spirit bears witness with our spirit and you walk away going... That was great. Give me another pagan. I, I need another one somewhere to share with them the gospel of Christ. And it motivates us to do even more good works. That's why Paul, he endured so much. He saw what he had. He saw what God had given him. So he was not going to stop in his endeavors. Now going on in verse 26. Brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Now, you recognize what this is? This is almost an insult that he is delivering because there are those in the fellowship that are saying, look who I associate with. Look what I have accomplished. And he goes, brothers. Not many of you were wise. What's the opposite of wise? Foolish. So some of you were foolish when you were called. Well, what else is there? What about influential? What's the opposite of influential? Having no influence whatsoever. You're kind of a loner. You're all by yourself. What's the other one? Noble, which means wealthy. You were poor. So you were foolish, a loner, and poor is what he's telling them. He says, not many of you. Obviously, there were some that were. Apollos was in the church there. Aquila and Priscilla were there. They were forced to go there because they were kicking out the Jews where they lived. And so they were there. But most of the people, I've used this illustration before, the island of misfit toys. They were an island of misfit people. They just didn't get it. And he goes, you, look at you. God chose you the foolish thing, the lowly thing, the thing that is not worth much to confound the ways, the human wisdom of the world and those who are the leaders. And that's what he did. And so he's making an example of how God uses godly wisdom as opposed to human wisdom. He goes on to say, he chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ who has become for us wisdom from God that is our, and there are three things here, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Now, 
What is he talking about here? If you go back in verse 30, it says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who, who is the who? Jesus Christ has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jesus is all those things to us. What is righteousness? The word justification means to be declared right before God. So when we go before God, if we have accepted Christ, God says, you are in right standing. You are acceptable to me as the Father. That's what the Father says. You are acceptable in my sight because the blood of Christ have, has covered you and washed your sins, made them white as snow. And so that's what happens with our salvation. The righteousness that is there, we are in right standing. Then there is the holiness. What's holiness? That's the working out salvation with fear and trembling. That's living the life in such a way where people recognize us as being followers of Christ. And they're not mistaken what that represents. And so it is not only the initial salvation that we are called to, being declared right, but then it's walking the walk until we get to eternity, which is the third thing, the redemption. So we start out being saved, we walk the walk of holiness, and then we finally get redeemed. Why is there so much time between the being saved, the being declared righteous, and redeeming? It's because you're not done cooking yet. God wants to send you through the fire, heat it up a little bit, take it down a little bit, heat it up a little bit. Let me ask you something. If, <clears throat> my wife, she's a wonderful cook. She has this chili dish oh, it's, oh, to die for. I mean, it's great. She makes this other dish called taglarini. It's like a mishmash of stuff. It has noodles and vegetables and meat in it. And, oh, it is. And I always eat it with lots of bread and butter on it, and I slurp it in there. I'm, I mean, I'm just taking it in. And there are several dishes which are like that, but it's specifically those two dishes that she fixes, they're always better the second or third day because it sits there and all those flavors just meld together. And when you heat it up again, oh, and you put some Parmesan cheese or some type of cheese on it, oh, it just... Are you guys hungry yet? And, and so you go through all of that and it tastes so much better. Well, that's what God's doing with us. We start out as the basic ingredients. And then God says, I'm going to add a little more to you. And I'm going to do some pruning and take out the bay leaf and everything so you don't eat that. You know. And you're going to get exactly what you need to make you into the person you need to be. And it takes a lifetime. That's why... We don't just instantly go to heaven. Now, there are cases where people do, but, and there are very few, but there is this idea that we have to baste for a while in what God has for us, and he, that is his desire for us. If you want to ask the question, why, God? Just say, you know, I'm basting. God wants me to baste for a while to become the person that he has meant me to be. So, going on. Verse 31 says, therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he's talking about boasting. He's talking about the pride. There was a tension at that time about Christ uh, being the Messiah and how the one who is going to save everyone and redeem everyone would be killed. And if you don't understand that, just go back and discover what was going on at the time of Christ. How could one who would save all die they they didn't understand that and if he saved others why is it he couldn't save himself because when a leader comes forward if he's intelligent if he has the answers if he's a political savant and he can go out there and he can just lead millions of people 
When he dies, what happens? It all goes away. And so that's what they thought. Well, this guy comes along, just get rid of him, it'll all go away. Of course, that was the beginning of what God intended to do. That is the wisdom of God. And you've heard me say this before. The way up is down. The way down is up. If we lower ourselves in the eyes of Christ, become his servant, he will glorify us and he will redeem us. If we lift ourselves up, God will oppose us and he will put us down. Now, with all of this, it has been said that you cannot preach, and I have said it, you cannot preach the gospel without preaching the cross. And I believe that. But what if we preach the gospel and do not preach the cross? And this is the idea of God's wisdom. Lowliness, the cross, dying to self, not elevating ourselves. I want to read to you, and I thought this was great. An illustration is by David Guzik, and it's on the website blueletterbible.org. Let me read this to you. Let every pulpit rightly say, we preach Christ crucified. A strong church once inscribed these words on the archway leading to the churchyard. Over time... Two things happened. The church lost its passion for Jesus and his gospel. The ivy began to grow over the archway. The growth of the ivy covering the message showed the spiritual decline. Originally, it said strongly, we preach Christ crucified. But as the ivy grew, one could only read, we preach Christ. And the church also started preaching Jesus the great man. Jesus, the moral example, instead of Christ crucified. The ivy kept growing, and one could soon only read, we preach. The church also had even lost Jesus in the message, preaching religious platitudes and social graces. Finally, one could only read, we. And the church also just became another social gathering place all about we, and not about God. May we never fall into that. May we never lose the fire. May we always forsake boasting. May we always pursue the selfless life. May we never use human wisdom in our pursuit of understanding God. May we always preach Christ and him crucified. May we always keep it personal, one-on-one. And may we humbly accept this word that is planted in us, for it is the power to save May God bless you as you seek after him. May you deny self. May you get up when you know you're supposed to be reading and read. May you get up when you know you're supposed to be praying and pray. And by the way, we are all broken in this. And God knows, and he's full of grace. As long as we're pressing forward, we will never fall behind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so enlightening. Help us to be like Paul, wanting to express his love for those who just couldn't get it right from time to time, but they were still yours. And they were his glory. So, Father, may there be those out there that become our glory, that we can lead them to you, that you would simply use us, that they would not be able to boast in us, a vessel, but they would boast in you, the one who is in us. So, Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness towards us. May you multiply that in our lives to give to others. In Jesus' name, and everyone said...